Hello and welcome to the Byline Scotland podcast. I'm Ronnie Barber. Our guest today is Stephen Gethins, a professor of international relations at the University of St Andrews. His article, Hidden in Plain Sight, Scotland's International Clout, is published on the Byline Scotland website. It examines the value of the Scottish brand to the UK economy and advocacy. And it also addresses the letter Foreign Secretary David Cameron wrote to the Scottish Government complaining about an apparent breach of protocol. Stephen, first of all, welcome to the Byline Scotland podcast. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Can I dive in right at the start? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this letter that uh, David Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, sent uh, to the Scottish Government, it's, it's saying it was a breach of protocol. Can I just ask, what is the protocol then about ministers abroad talking? Is it written down? I think it's written down. I'm not entirely sure where it's written down. It's probably written down between officials. I think there's all a bit of a storm in the teacup here. What happens is when a Scottish government minister or, or, or a minister from another devolved administration goes overseas, they're meant to tell the local foreign office and the foreign office will send an official with them to sit in on their meetings. That's not a terribly unusual thing to happen. What seems to be the problem here, and I wasn't at the meeting, so I wasn't there, <laughs> is that they're criticising Hamza Youssef for having met President Erdogan of Turkey at the COP summit in Dubai without their, if you like, their their foreign office minder being present. Now, from what we can gather, the foreign office minder didn't get to the meeting in time, although they were told. Now, this is a slightly unusual situation because if, at these big international summits, the first minister will be taking the opportunities as and when he finds them to engage with leaders. And what seems to have happened on this occasion is that the Foreign Office minder didn't get to the meeting in time. But President Erdogan isn't going to hang around because of the niceties of devolved, reserved competences or what the FCDO do and don't do. So I think it's all a bit of a storm in a teacup. But what it does speak to is a lack of recognition at Westminster for or Whitehall certainly, and some bits of Whitehall, for the international role that Scotland has to play, like other devolved administrations. Is the tension, do you think, he's talking about Westminster there, Stephen, do you think the tension is between uh, British nationalism and Scottish nationalism, you know, that Scotland want to be a global player uh, but have to take the guidance from Westminster? Do you think that's a tension? What you've opened up there are, are, is a multi-layered issue. So first of all, Scotland has an international profile. This isn't something that is exclusive to the SNP Green administration. In fact, Scotland's first international office in recent times was opened in Brussels by the Conservatives in 1992. And then that was expanded upon under devolution with Labour and the Liberal Democrats. I saw a lot of fuss in some of the papers about um, there being about the office in Washington, D.C. over Christmas. That was a post that was put in place by the Labour and Liberal Democrat administration. So it would be unusual for the SNP Green administration to roll that back. So that's the first thing. And I think figuring that out is important because if you get your international affairs right, not only do you have clout in big issues like climate, responding to issues like the war in Ukraine, but also the big issues of the day, climate change, a lot of the cost of living are not tackled without international engagement. There is a divergence. You know, you have a, gov a conservative government at Westminster <laughs> 
who are pursuing a policy of isolationism and increased lack of multilateralism as a result of Brexit. That's what Brexit was for. It was for the UK saying we don't want to make decisions with the other 27 member states of the EU. We want to do it ourselves. Whereas the Scottish government takes a much more multilateralist approach to that. It wants to be part of the European Union, other big international organisations. Now, some of that has to do with political um, attitudes, political divergence, maybe some of it's to do with size as well, so that maybe Scotland's approach to foreign policy has more in common with the ideological approach that would be taken in Dublin or Helsinki than that in London, for example. That problem is always going to be with us because Brexit is always going to be with us, Stephen. So how how does Scotland get that message over, not just to the world, but to the Scottish uh, population, that international affairs really, really does affect uh, what happens at home because they're all intertwined, aren't they? They are all intertwined. So let me just take your questions in two different ways. Let me emphasise just how intertwined these things are. One of the biggest things that have been driving Scottish politics in recent well, the single biggest thing that's been driving politics anywhere in the UK in recent years has been the cost of living crisis. That cost of living crisis is caused by a whole range of issues. Um, Russia's um, illegal invasion of Ukraine being one of them, but Brexit has had a very significant impact given that the UK is now outside that single market. That's not new. Historically, Scotland has been buffeted and its domestic policies have been impacted by foreign policy. Treaty of Union was one, you know, um, part of the re reason for the Treaty of Union was the failure of the Darien Plan, the failure of Scottish foreign colonial policy at that time. Um, so it has a big impact. It's very difficult to make rules purely, you know, without any international con con considerations. I think the way the world's going are those economies moving closer together. And that's why I ultimately think the Brexit um, experiment will will fail because it, it, it goes against... It goes against the grain of what's what's happening, but it does inform us of that divergence between London and Edinburgh in terms of how they pursue their foreign policy. Foreign policy is reserved, but there are issues around foreign policy, such as some of the issues around cost of living, climate change, financing that, that, that are devolved to the Scottish government, and you can't ignore it. Good, goodness, we've just been through a pandemic that you know, from, 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 from what we know started in a market in Wuhan in China and a couple of months later we were all locking down. What about the, the what's going on in Gaza uh, and the government, uh, the British government's uh, um, stance is no ceasefire, whereas Scottish government is very much for a, a ceasefire. That element of uh, Scotland going off in one way and uh, the British government going off in another doesn't help, does it? Well, okay, first of all, the, the, the issue in Gaza, appalling as it is, is a little bit more clear-cut, which is the United Kingdom sits as a P5 member on the UN Security Council, and that is foreign policy. That shouldn't stop people in Scotland debating and discussing what is a very significant issue. Um, and, and that's what they've done. I mean, I think Hamza Youssef has had a very particular insight into the war on, um, the, the war on Gaza, and I, I, I think he's voiced that, and I think he's he's added to the discussion and debate around that particular issue, given his own insights. I will say, though, that this isn't unusual. So this whole thing about speaking with one voice, nobody speaks with one voice if you live in a diverse, pluralistic and democratic country. Let's go back to Iraq. Under the Labour Liberal Administration, you had 
a debate on Iraq in the Scottish Parliament on the Iraq War, which I think one of the Scottish journalists at the time, and I quote this in my book, um, talked about being one of the best debates they'd heard since the advent of devolution at that time on, on the war in Iraq. But also if you go to other countries, Belgium, Germany, Canada, the United States even, um, the sub-state entities, and by sub-state entity I mean um, an entity that is not at the full state level. Now, people like me want Scotland to be independent and have that, have that become a state. We're not at the moment. So let's call it a sub-state entity. They have foreign policy discussions and debates all the time. Greenland signs defence treaties with the United States. You know, the Canadian provinces sit on international trade delegations. The Bavarians will sign treaties with their 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 neighbours. So this thing about talking about foreign policy with one voice is nonsense, especially in a communications interconnected age. I mean, what does Hamza do? Does the moment that he sets foot in um, you know, sets foot elsewhere in in in, in Europe, he all of a sudden has to change his mind on, on Gaza? That's not realistic. People have their views and are entitled to their views, although at the moment the UK has responsibility over foreign policy. But I think it does speak to a wider issue at Westminster of being afraid to debate and discuss some of these very, very complex issues where there is a plurality of views in the UK in the same way there's a plurality of views in other countries around the world. You also talk in the article about Scotland's clout uh, commercially, the brand Scotland. I, I, I thought we were pretty good about uh, promoting the brand, uh, but you don't seem to think so? We're better than most. Scotland is one of the most recognised international brands anywhere on earth and perhaps the most recognised brand um, of a country that is not an independent country. But I think there's more that we can do. We have a diaspora of 40 million. We do reasonably well tapping into it. The Irish do it better. It's something the Scottish government have, have looked into. Now, what makes it challenging is when you can anchor that in a network of embassies. And there's been a mixed bag of the way in which the UK network makes the most of that. And fundamentally, why is this important? Well, it's important for jobs investment back home, because if you're trying to sell an experience, for example, come to Scotland on your holidays, or you're trying to sell a product, whiskey is the most obvious example, but you also get beef, fish products, whatever else, some of the excellent products that are coming out of Scotland, you are selling that brand. So this is about jobs and investment at home. And I would hope that a discussion about how you best harness Scotland's brand is one that you can actually have putting aside any differences that you might have on the constitutional question. I think it's done best with Scotland as an independent country, but I've got friends and colleagues who think it's done best within the United Kingdom. That's a legitimate discussion to have because ultimately what you're trying to do is to keep people at work and to boost the Scottish economy. And by, by the way, in the same way that countries all around the world will be will be doing, if you're a French cheese producer or a Belgian beer producer, you'd be doing exactly the same thing. The Tory party's kind of emerged uh, since the 2016 EU referendum is kind of ideologically driven by, I suppose, economic fundamentalism. Uh, big state, mm -hmm. bad. Small state, good. Regulation, bad. Ultra-free markets, good. Do you think the leaders uh, fear Scotland having a raised global profile? So I think it undermines the Brexit project, and I think that's a good thing. When I speak to people about the question of independence, there are some... Hard questions around independence. That's no, you know, you're asking people to put trust in you. But that's where, for me, the major divergence in our constitutional politics goes. So the reason why you're getting a harder line out of Westminster is 
for me, is a Westminster government that lacks self-confidence in the position in which it's found itself. If you're self-confident in the position in which you find yourself, you don't mind discussion and debate because you're able to sit there and and stand up for what you believe in to set out for what for what you believe in. So for me, when they try and close down that discussion and debate, that speaks to a lack of self-confidence. Now, from a Scottish perspective, Brexit has been a failure. It's seen as a failure in every other country. Um, other countries will try and work with it because that's what you've got. But as they will consistently re repeat, the UK damaged itself and that damaged people's livelihoods, put up the cost of food and drink, adding to the cost of living. So I think Scottish a Scottish government minister has a responsibility to put forward a different point of view that will help help with jobs and investment. Um, it also helps longer term with what I hope and what the majority of people of Scotland hope, if polls are to be believed, which is Scotland rejoins the European Union at some point. You don't just turn up one day and rejoin. The groundwork starts now. The groundwork is, is done on an ongoing basis. So I think, yes, it speaks to the Scottish government's long-term ambitions, but I'm afraid I think it also speaks to a Westminster government's lack of self-confidence in the position in which it finds itself internationally. We expect an election, a uh, general election next year. I don't think things are going to change under a Labour government, are they? Well, you'd have to speak to somebody from the Labour Party about that, I'm afraid. I can't speak for the Labour Party. But on the question internationally, you'd hope there'd be a different approach to our relations with Europe. But fundamentally, I mean, you've had John Curtis on previously. As John Curtis would say, people have turned against Brexit. The people that are voting for the Labour Party in England certainly are are voting um, against Brexit. So there's an opportunity to show that this is a failed experiment that's costing too much. Whether or not Labour react to that, that's an entirely that's entirely a matter for to question the Labour Party. The signs aren't good at the moment, unfortunately, that that, that they would seek to reverse that. But in a first past the post system where According to Brexiteers, sovereignty rests. And incidentally, the, the, the question of sovereignty, there's a different um, version of sovereignty in England as there is in Scotland, but the sovereignty rests exclusively in the UK Parliament. I think it's an outdated one. The most sovereign country on earth is North Korea, and they're not doing terribly well. You have to engage, you have to interact, both within your country, if you're going to be pluralistic, but actually more widespread um, amongst our European partners. For those of us who believe in independence, we need to see that independence exists in the same way as it does in the other member states of the European Union. And that means engaging in a partnership of equals. But I wonder if the model of union in the European Union has now replaced the model of union that we get within the United Kingdom as being the best in terms of how we engage with our partners in these islands, but also in the rest of Europe as well. You also write about uh, conflict resolution. Scotland's uh, been good at this over the years. Is that part of Scotland being a crucial international actor? This is something we're already doing, actually. So it's already happening. So you've got for former First Minister Nicholas Sturgeon developed a project with the UN and a, a fantastic organisation called Beyond Border Scotland um, to bring women peace builders to Scotland. Um, that's been a really successful project. Look, Everybody's got a role to play. I think you can do the work in terms of peace building on certain conflicts. You can't do it. You can't be there as a um, sort of one-stop shop for everybody, but you can establish yourself. Mark Miller-Stewart, who's a um, 
who was a senior official at the United Nations, like still is, has written about Scotland's place being able to host talks, being seen as a relatively um, neutral actor in in some regards with 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 some conflicts. This is something I worked on, you know, in in terms of the South Caucasus, but also you can see it as being something that that, that may be of interest to the international community more broadly as well. Talking about the Scottish situation, you've got strong uh, pro-EU uh, groups in Scotland, the European movement, um, but you've also got yes to the EU group. How important will it be that those two kind of come together for Scotland's future? I think there's a very clear vision, and that's the sort of thing that these kind of groups can communicate and vocalise very, very effectively, which is if your long-term ambition is for Scotland to be part of the European Union, you need to talk about it, you need to discuss it, you need to debate it. There's no one single voice, there's no one single model on how that's successful. So I think these groups, by keeping the issue in the news, keeping it in people's consciousness, that becomes a really important tool. One thing that I always tell students is that foreign policy and international affairs is not simply an issue of um, prime ministers and presidents companies engage with, universities engage with, and something that we as individuals engage with. So international affairs is for, for everybody. So that's, that's something that have, having these groups discussing and debating our relationship with the EU is, is, is important. In England, of course, uh, probably in Scotland as well, but in England, one of the biggest things like, they say is immigration. Scotland is right at the front of the queue, about proud about uh, welcoming em immigrants into the country. That's not something that this would seem to me the Westminster government uh, want to kind of endorse. This is something that, that, that can be damaging, is how we talk about how welcome people are um, to our country. We know that Scotland needs immigration, we know that. We also know that in other countries, immigration is devolved. You take your own decisions on, on, on questions of, 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 of migration. And we know that within the European Union, there are plenty of levers for doing that as, as well. I think some of the rhetoric's really damaging um, that, that, that we're hearing at the moment. And actually, one of the things that's been commented on is the way in which Rishi Sunak is finding common ground with Georgia Maloney in, 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 in Italy. And there are people saying arguing, well, this this means the Italian government's become centre-right. I'd argue, actually, if it looks like a far-right policy and smells like a far-right policy, then maybe it is a far-right policy. So I, th I, th I think, you know, let's let's reflect. I, I'm not a historian, but I like speaking to historians. You learn from your history. Scotland is a nation of migrants that we benefit from the different migrant communities who've done us so honour of making Scotland their home for who are Scots. We, we lose out when good people decide, you know, for good reasons, nobody's going to stop anybody from when they decide to go elsewhere, be it to elsewhere in the UK, be it to London, be it to elsewhere in Europe, like Brussels, be it to the United States, Canada, Australia, we lose out. So migration is a good thing and it has driven almost every country in Europe's economy one way or another um, for years and years. And we're one of the few countries in Europe, I think the only country in Europe that hasn't seen its population increase over the past century. So there are some serious questions, but I think we need a better discussion and debate on migration, the benefits it brings. It's not to say there should be uncontrolled migration. I don't think we're, we're, again, everybody's arguing that, but we are seeing a debate and discussion on something that's good for the economy, and that's fundamentally good for jobs and investment at home. Your article is, is optimistic as well. Are you optimistic about Scotland's uh, global role then? Yes, I am. As the world moves closer together, we've got a huge opportunity. 
in terms of how we communicate what we're for. And I saw that during the Brexit process, for example, the Scottish government using some really good social media to express that Scotland was still a European country and still open for business, exactly the right message that you need to be putting across. We've got the opportunity that people are traveling and more interconnected. I work at a university which is extensively international, that we are we're rich and we're a better university for um, the diversity of our student body and staff body, um, for example. So yes, I'm optimistic. There are challenges, you know, and we've seen that actually with that internationalization, you see disinformation creeping in about how we discuss and debate really tricky international situations that, that, that we've seen and how we've debated and discussed issues like Putin's Russia over the past decade. So I think we need to be mindful of that. There are huge opportunities, but there are also huge challenges. I think we need to show that Scotland is ready to be a responsible global citizen. That was Professor Stephen Gethins. You can read the full article on the Byline Scotland website. Stephen's book, Nation to Nation, Scotland's Place in the World, is available from Luth Press. That's it. We'll see you next time on the Byline Scotland podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>